All right, we're going to continue our study through the book of 1 John. I'm really excited to open God's Word with you guys tonight. Um, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I, th- I thought Steve did such a good job last week. For you who were there, that was... He did such a good job. Just helpfully explained the text, helped us to see why it matters. I, I was thinking while he was teaching and while I was listening to Ed uh, and his teaching from two weeks ago, we are, we are an unusually blessed church. Uh, I, I mean, the fact that we not only have pastors who love the Savior, love the Word of God, love teaching it and explaining it, to us, but we, we have a church that is full of men who are the same, who love the Savior, who love the Word of God, who love to teach it. They are excellent teachers, and I, I'm just so thankful. Like, that's, that's not common in churches. You guys get that, right? Like, the fact that we have so many, that's a blessing. God is, He's been so kind to us, so I just want to point that out and thank you guys for teaching and, um, and, and, it's a little nerve-wracking because they, they've set the bar high. Uh, so, um, but I'm thankful that the power is not in me and, uh, or any speaker, but it's in the word that's spoken, which is God's word. So let's pray as we begin tonight. Let's just ask God for grace. <sighs> Father, we, we know that we need your word. We are weak, our hearts often drift, we're prone to wander, and we need your word both to correct and exhort and call us to the truth, to call us to yourself, but we also need it to encourage and build us up in the way that we are to live and in, into a deeper fellowship and relationship with the God that this word is all about. We need your word tonight. Thank you that Green Tree Church is a, is a people, is a family that loves the word, that is dependent on it. Thank you that you have done that in us. We trust that tonight as we read, as we hear from your word, that you're going to change us, uh, that you're going to transform us, not because anything that I've prepared is so amazing, Uh, in fact, the contrary, (laughs) but it is because your word is transformative, and you've put your spirit in us, so we trust that you're going to, we're going to leave different people tonight. Um, May we be expectant of that, uh, and may we find that you are true to your promises, which you always are. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been hearing the last few weeks, John is writing this letter to his dear children in the faith, to encourage them in their faith, to encourage these believers to hold fast to the gospel that they have believed. He writes to plead with them not to be swayed by the false teachings that they have heard from friends that they used to be a part of together in churches, brothers and sisters they once did the Christian life with who had now deserted 
abandoned the truth. And John writes to remind these believers of what is true. He writes to exhort them to call them to a life of love for God and love for one another. John writes to call his children in the faith to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've heard the last couple weeks and as we will continue to hear throughout the rest of this book, John is repeatedly calling these believers to a way of living that mimics how Jesus lived, right? Like in John, uh, 1 John 2, 6, we see that. So as, as far, uh, so far we have heard John call his readers and by implication us, every Christian to walk in the light and not to walk in the darkness, to walk in the same way in which Jesus himself walked, to keep his commandments and to love his brothers. And the list will repeat and go on and on. And I, th- I, I think the apostle knew what I'm sure a lot of us can tend to feel when we hear all of these exhortations and, and what I guess a, a lot of his readers would have felt at the time of hearing this letter read. We, we can hear all these calls to obedience and growth and holiness and wholehearted devotion. And we could just get, all right, that, that's a lot. That's a lot for me. I feel like I'm, I'm barely doing a good job with what I'm working on now. I don't know if I can keep, keep up with this. We can often look at all the commands of Scripture, all of the calls for the Christian to live wholeheartedly. That means with all of us unto Christ. And we can so easily feel just overwhelmed and not up to the task. In our text... It's as if John anticipates how his readers are feeling, and because he's, he's a pastor, and because he cares deeply for these people, rather than continuing along with the rest of his exhortations and, and calls to obedient living, he, he pauses, and he takes the time to encourage them. It's as if he's saying, I know what you're thinking. This all feels too much. I understand. Remember this. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. You know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We're gonna continue and read verses 15 through 17 in a little bit. Uh, And if you look down at those verses, you'll see that he continues on with his calls to holy living, right? But in these three precious verses, John pauses to help the reader reflect on what God has done 
in their lives. Not what he wants them to do, but what God has already done. He wants to bring them comfort and to experience assurance and to find hope and to regain confidence that they they can do this thing called the Christian life. And he does this by reminding them of three things, who they are, who they know, and who they have become. In these three verses, John states and restates three verses concerning those who have been rescued and redeemed by the Savior. So, if that's you tonight, if you have believed in who Jesus is, if you have trusted in what he has done to rescue a sinner like you, and if you experience moments or days or seasons struggling with assurance in your salvation because of your weaknesses and failures, and if you ever find yourself thinking, I just don't know if I can do this anymore, God himself, through the Apostle John, wants to remind you of these three things. But first, I want to clarify something I think will be important to understanding who John is addressing in these three verses, because there are, there are multiple thoughts on what the children, fathers, and young men means. There's a pretty strong consensus from what I've read among scholars that the address to children is just John's normal, affectionate, loving term for everyone who is reading his letter. They are his children in the faith. So that's like, that's like the broad general address to everyone. And then the disagreement among scholars concerns the other two groups, right? Which seems to fall under, under the broad group of children. So some think that John is addressing two different age groups. So the fathers, meaning the older people of the church, and the young men, meaning the younger people in the church. Pretty simple. So just, for example, in our church, old men like Steve and Ed, really, really old guys, super old, and young men like me and Eric. So just so you can visualize that. That's, so, that so that's one way of thinking it, different, uh, different age groups. Others think that these two groups are referring to different levels of spiritual maturity. So fathers being those who are older in the faith, having been Christians for longer, or, or just having been discipled and, and growing with fervor, right? Uh, and young men being those who are young believers, probably new to the Christian faith. I, I tend to lean towards this uh, way of thinking, just different levels of uh, spiritual maturity. Uh, but no matter where you land, here's what we know for sure. No matter what, the things that are addressed to each of these groups is true of all believers. It's all Christians, okay? These are realities that are true of every believer. And so if you are older or younger, either in age or in your spiritual walk, don't just pay attention to the things that are seemingly addressed to you. Recognize that they are all addressed to you. They are all truths about every Christian, no matter where you're at, because they are truths of grace, meaning they're not dependent on us. It's all what God is doing in us. So, John wants us to remember three things. First, let's look at who we are. John begins these reminders with this glorious reality. I am writing to you, little children, 
because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Your sins are forgiven. Let's just stop. That's amazing. That is amazing. For sinners like you and me, being reminded that our sins, which are many, are forgiven, is a reality that should never get old. Your sins are forgiven. This is, this is a completed, done thing. He's done it. You're forgiven. And notice what he says is the basis of and for this forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven because you've loved God and your brothers and sisters enough and you're growing in obedience and I see you fighting that darkness. No, 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 no. He says your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Or I think a better translation of the original Greek would be how the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV puts it. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. John is reminding us that not only have our sins been forgiven, but it has nothing to do, thank God, nothing to do with what we can bring to the table. It has nothing to do with our performance or our hard work and holiness. There was nothing we could or ever can do to earn God's forgiveness. It is on account of, on the basis of the name, meaning the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have been fully forgiven and accepted because of what Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, which is, as we heard earlier in 1 John, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Believer, whenever, whenever you feel that you're not a very good Christian, which is true, and because of that, Jesus must not love you, whenever you're struggling to know for sure that you are really saved, the next step is not for you to pull up your bootstraps and get to work doing more things to earn more favor with God, the first thing we are to do is remind ourselves of who we are. Who am I? I am, I'm a forgiven one. I have been forgiven on account of the name, on account of Jesus, his person and his work. The first step is to remember who you are and to simply bask in it. Second John wants his readers to remember who they are. We actually find that this one is closely related to the first. There are uh, kind of two sections in these three verses where in the first, John makes three statements, and in the second, he basically repeats them verbatim, right? You, you see that in the structure, children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. In his addressing to fathers, the wording is the same. It says, you know him who was from the beginning. In his address to young men, he makes the same statement twice, but the second time, he wants to explain a little more what he means by you have overcome the world. We're going to get to that in a minute. Now, in his address to children, he says, I write to you because your sins are forgiven, and I write to you because you know the Father. Why does he say that? It almost seems like, hey, John, I think, I think you forgot what you said before. You were talking about our sins being forgiven. 
but no, John knew exactly what he was doing. He knows that when our sins before God are forgiven on account of what Jesus has done, we are brought into a relationship with God himself. That's what he means by the word no, right? This, this is not a know of or know informationally or, or know about. This is a no personal, relational, intimate knowing. I love how J.I. Packer in his excellent book, Knowing God, puts it when he says, knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him as he takes knowledge of you. When we say, that, that's the end of the quote, this is me now. When we say that we know God, it is knowing him as a person who has opened himself up to us and brought us into a relationship with him. This is also why John doesn't say, you know the truth, which would have been a correct statement. That's not what he's trying to get at. He's saying you have been brought into a relationship with the God who saved you. And not only that, but you have been adopted as his children, so you get to call him what the Son of God himself calls him, Father. He's not just your God. He's not just your King. He is not just your Redeemer. He is your Father. Notice that when addressing his children in verse 14, he says, you know the Father. But when addressing fathers, both times, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. Okay, who is he talking about? The only one that John refers to in this way as being from the beginning, both in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, is the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John means to tell his readers that when you trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and you enter into a personal knowing relationship with Jesus. And knowing Jesus Christ is knowing the Father because despite what the false prophets were teaching the people, Jesus Christ is one with the Father. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God himself made flesh to come down to be known by us and to know us. You know, Christian, you know God himself. People that aren't Christians, they, they, can't even, they don't even understand that. They can't fathom that. Some might say, yeah, I know, I know God, I know Jesus, but what they mean is they've heard about him, they've read about him in stories, uh, they pray to him every once in a while, but, it, but if you haven't been forgiven of your sins, you can't know him. You can't, you can't get close because he is holy and your sins need to be punished. But on account of the name, we are forgiven and so we know him. The unbeliever hasn't experienced his forgiveness, hasn't experienced his tender fatherly care. We, we have, so we know him. We know him. So believer, remember who you know and recognize that as Dr. Packer later states in that chapter of Knowing God, he says this, 
What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. That's so great. Friends, we, we get to know God, who has pursued and continues pursuing knowing us. We know him. This is a wonderful assurance for the struggling soul. Lastly, the final thing that John wants the Christian to remember is who we have become. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Another translation puts it like this, and I I love this. You have conquered the evil one. We have become conquerors in Christ over the evil one and all that he represents. So a couple things here. Christian, we must recognize, first, we we are in a war, okay? And this is not merely a war against our own sinful nature, but as Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us, a war against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are in Ephesians 6, called to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's devil's schemes. We need to recognize this because if you don't think you have an enemy, you are far more prone to his schemes. I don't know about you, but if I really think about the fact that we are at war with Satan and all of his spiritual demonic forces, I can, I can very easily feel just weak and not ready. But John writes to remind us that in Christ, we have become conquerors, overcomers of the evil one. See the war has been won by Jesus Christ himself. He is the capital O overcomer, and the good news is that if we are in him, we are also overcomers. We are on the winning team. And hopefully, as you look at your life, you've noticed where Christ has helped you to overcome. You see areas in your life where you say no to temptation and yes to righteousness, but what else does Satan love to do besides tempt us. He loves to bring us to despair, right? One of, one of my favorite hymns that we sing before the throne of God above says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, he points out our sin and our failures and says, you are so weak. You are a loser. You don't belong with Jesus. He does that. What do we do? 
How are we to respond? We look to the Savior. Upward, I look and I see him there who made an end of all of my sins. Every single one on the basis of our Savior Jesus Christ, we get to say, I have overcome the evil one. That is good news. John goes on, verse 14, to explain why they have overcome the evil one. You are strong, this is what he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. This is what God has done in us. We can easily look to ourselves and recognize, I'm not strong. If you think you are, you are fooled and life is gonna hit and you're gonna realize real quick and that, that's happening to me all the time. I think I'm strong and he's just like, bam. We are weak, we are so weak, but God has made us strong. He has made his word, his living word to abide in us. Now, when he says that his word abides in us, I, th I think it means two things. First, I think it means the word of God, the Bible, right? Pretty plain and simple. Uh, and, and Psalm 119 verse 11 says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We see this exemplified when Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew 11. Christ is strong against the temptations of Satan. Why? Because he has God's word stored up in his heart. He keeps quoting scripture to him and allowing the word of God to rule his life. And so he overcomes the evil one and his schemes. John is saying to his reader and to us, when by grace you allow the word of God to make its home in your heart, it will, it has to. It's a transformative word. It will produce fruit of godliness and rejecting the world. So that is the first thing John means by word of God abiding in us. But I also believe that it means the capital W word of God, meaning the person of Jesus Christ. This makes sense, right? The son of God, Jesus is described as the word of God in the gospel of John chapter one. As we spend time reading and meditating on and storing up the word of God, we are not just interacting with a book or knowledge or information, we are, we are engaging with a person. That's why we wanna be in it. We're engaging with the person whom this entire book is written about. It's all pointing to him. We are engaging with the person of Jesus Christ and by the grace of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by the Spirit of God lives in you to dwell. When you are forgiven, and you are brought into a relationship with God, he does this astounding thing. He pours his spirit into you where he is there for good. This is true strength, this is true power, this is the only hope we have for overcoming the evil one, and John says it's there, it's in you. So if you are weary, if you are weak, lift up your head. Remember, you are forgiven. You know God and you have a power in you far greater than you can ever imagine. Now remember, John is about to jump back into 
exhortations, calling us further to growth and wholehearted devotion to God. But now, now we're ready. Now we're ready to hear it. Now we are properly encouraged and motivated. And I would guess that the original readers having heard this would be sitting up straighter, chin up, and a countenance changed from broken to ready, ready for the fight, ready to hear what else he calls them to, ready to keep on in the Christian life. So let's continue reading verses 15 through 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The last couple weeks we've seen that John has been using this illustration of darkness and light, right? Light versus dark. But now John shifts to talk about two opposing loves. Love of the world and love of the Father. So what do we see about these two loves? First, pretty obvious, the love of the world and the love of the Father do not go together. They can't. And it's not even like they don't go together like oil and water not being able to mix. I don't really think that illustration is helpful here because I I always think about like when you put water and oil in a jar and you're like, see, they don't mix, but they're in the same container. John is saying that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These two loves don't dwell in the same container, same space. It can't happen. This reminds us of when Jesus in Matthew 6 says, no one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Both John and Jesus are saying, you can't have a heart that truly loves God while also having love for the world. I don't think we really get this or think this way. Uh, I, I think in moments when we are tempted or maybe we've given in to sin, and we know it. We, we get that nudge, which is the Holy Spirit telling us, hey, what you're loving right now, it, it does not work with what God has remade you to be. It doesn't work. We, we hear him and we feel him pulling us away from the world, but what do we do? We fight against it. We make excuses. We blame shift. It's not my fault. They started it. I'm good at that. We do whatever we can to hold on to our sinful desires. John is saying when you are doing that, when you cling to your love of the world, you are choosing between that and your love for God, which is what you most need. Now, in case anyone is thinking, but we, we live in the world. Aren't, aren't we supposed to love it? Aren't we supposed to be in the world? And in fact, doesn't John 3.16 says that God loves the world? Now, that's a great question. It's very reasonable. And in case you're thinking that or, or confused by what John does mean here, let's clarify. 
When John says, do not love the world, he does not mean the material world around us or the people in it. What he does mean by world is this, the sinful mindset of the world which is opposed to God and his ways. So when John says world, you can almost read it as worldliness, living according to the values and behaviors of this sinful world that are contrary to God. We see this in verse 16 where John helps us to see how love of the world is played out and what it looks like. What does he say? All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This can seem a little complicated, but we need to understand this because we've got to fight against it, right? So so let's dive in quickly and get a bit technical. Forgive me for that. Uh, The word translated as desires here is the Greek word epithemia. It can be translated as lust or as we see here, desire, and it has this connotation of a negative over-desire. So right away, we see that loving the world is not just a basic desire. For example, like uh, after this Bible study tonight, I desire to have a piece of, of, of Reese's Blondie's bar that my wife made, and I'm really excited about it. I desire it. That, that's not a bad thing, thank goodness, because that's what I'm going for. Uh, and that's not the kind of desire that John is talking about here. We're, we're talking about an over-desire, right? So what does that mean? So, for example, I, I, I must have a piece of the Reese's Blondie bar. I need it to end my day in a happy way, and if anything gets in my way, I'm not going to be happy. That's, that's an extreme example, but sometimes it happens. Um, so that, that normal desire, even a good desire for the Reese's Blondie Bar, I talk a lot about that in this teaching, um, that's, a, that's a good desire to eat something pretty great. It has become an over-desire when it is ruling my life, when it is ruling my affections, my loves, my actions. And we need to recognize that the problem is not the blondie, it's not the thing, right? It's not even the desire itself. It is the fact that this desire has become a little God to me. So what is the love of the world? John tells us the over-desire of the flesh or the body and the over-desire of the eyes. Let's just stop there. Over-desire of the body, this is when something that our body wants which are often good things, gifts from God, even, even necessary things. So we're talking food, drink, sex, rest, leisure, things like that. These are not bad things. These are good things. They're given to us from God as gifts. But when the desire for these things become idols, I must have it, I deserve it, I need it to be happy and to feel good about myself. When, we, when we're worshiping those things and becoming dependent on them, that. John is saying is worldliness, love of the world. And it is not loving the Father. It is not resting in his love as all we need. Okay, now, over-desire of the eyes. So that means whatever my eyes see and I desire, so some, someone else's financial situation, someone else's popularity, someone else's relationship, someone else's house, 
body, appearance, hair, car, Instagram followers, influence, whatever we see and desire, and rather than handing these things over to God and saying, I can be content with what you have in your love and care given to me or not given to me, rather than that, this desire becomes an over-desire, and that's coveting, that is love of the world, and where love of the world is, right, doesn't mix, can't be in the same container. The love of the Father is not there. Guys, we do, we do this so often, we don't even see it. So I, I just encourage you, um, be on the lookout for it, uh, because it's serious. He talks about it seriously. Pray and ask God to reveal it to you, and when you notice an over-desire for things, just ask for grace. He's a kind father. He wants to help. Ask for grace to be emptied of those empty loves. They leave you empty. You just want more. Those non-satisfying loves, and ask for grace to be filled with love for God. Okay, so desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and finally, John talks about the pride of life. That word, life, can either be translated literally as life. It's bios, the Greek word, where we get the word biology. But it can also be translated as material possessions, which I, th I think is helpful here. So John is saying essentially what you have and how you live. Pride of what you have and how you live. So rather than just coveting what other people have and how they live, if you were taking pride in what you have and how you live, this is love of the world. These desires, this mindset is, it's a, it is waging war against the love of God. Why would we let that remain in us? And you might be tempted to think, all right, what's the big deal? I mean, hopefully you're not thinking that right now while we're in the middle of teaching, but at least one day you will think that. In the midst of temptation, you will think, what's the big deal? John helps us again. Why is worldliness a big deal? Why isn't it worth it? He gives us two clear reasons. First, the world is passing away. That just makes sense. It's, it's passing away. Our over-desires, the pride of what we have and the life we have, it, it's fading. The book of Ecclesiastes describes it as a vapor. I mean, think, think if I put a, piece, a little piece of dry ice in a small bowl of water, just missing, you try to grab it, you can't grab that, and eventually it's just gone. It just fades away. And you know what? Life is, it's so quick. Sometimes this life on earth can feel eternal. Um, it's not. It's not. Eternity is eternal. And John is saying, if you build, if you ground your life on what is passing away, what is fading away, you will fade with it. But if you ground your life in God and in his will and in his love, you will abide, what does it say? Forever. You will abide forever and ever. That's what we want. That's what we want. What is the second reason John gives us for why worldliness is not worth it? 
We saw it earlier. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is connected to the first reason. When we run after the world, when we make its desires our gods, the thing that we need most in the world to love God and be loved by God, it's, it is not in us. See, the reason why I think this section on do not love the world follows those wonderful words of encouragement and assurance that John gives us is that he wants us to see, pay attention, he wants us to say, see, this battle of loves is fueled by our knowing God, by our being in relationship with him, by our remembering of who he has made us. He's saying, children, remember, you are forgiven. Remember, he has made you strong. He has put his spirit in you. Remember, you know God. You know him. How can you love anything else but him? I love my wife. I love Chloe Faith Tedeschi. She chooses me. She chose me. And she chooses me daily. She knows me at my best and at my worst. And yet she still loves me. She often sacrifices her wants for my good. She has committed herself to me in a covenant relationship. I, I know her. If I could spend my entire day with her, I would do it so quick. When we, when we first got married, and which wasn't that long ago, and we got back from our honeymoon, uh, and so the honeymoon's over, and uh, I had to go back to work. I remember waking up that morning and thinking, whoa, 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 I have to go spend time with other people? What are you talking about? Can she come with me? Can we bring work here? Like, what? Yeah. I, I, and, and just for, I love all of you, um, but if I had to choose between you and her, I'm, I'm sprinting to her. I'm sprinting to my wife. Let's say some random person on the street comes up to me and offers me a lifetime of happiness and fun. I don't, I don't even mean like sinful. Uh, I, I just mean offers me all the things that I love in this life, right? Like lots of drums and guitars. They're all there, cool sneakers, Reese's Blondie Bars. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's in here a lot. Uh, they offer to give me anything I could ever dream for or ask for. They offer me a lifetime of happiness, but... I have to leave my wife and, and go join them. She can't be with me. What do I say? It's the easiest no of my life. It just is. It's not even a question. I'm not, I'm not considering that for a second. Not even just because, well, I've committed to you in relation to, we're married, so I can't leave you. It's, it, it's far better and more than that. It's deeper. Why do I say no? I don't know them. I don't know these people. Better yet, I do know my wife. I know who she is. I love her. 
If I could have the world or be in relationship with Chloe, I'm choosing her every day, over and over again. Friends, you know the Savior. You know him. How could you, how could I love anything, anyone else but him? John encourages us. He reminds us that we are forgiven. He reminds us that we have been made strong and we've been given his spirit to dwell in us. He reminds us that we know the Savior. We know him. He is worthy of our love. He is the only one worthy of our love. And friends, when, when we love him and we run to him in love over and over and over again, day by day, wake up, run to Jesus. Go to sleep, wake up, run to Jesus. When we do that, we find that his love abides in us. We're gonna see more of that in, in this beautiful book. And, and when we find that our God-given desire for satisfaction, it's, it's fulfilled in him. And we will abide with him, knowing him forever and ever. So let's just take time to ask for God's grace to help. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can call you that. We start so many prayers and we say it. Sometimes we don't even think about the wondrous, wondrous reality that we get to call the God, the creator of the universe. We get to call him not judge, not creator or king. We get to call you Father. You have brought us into relationship with you. You have adopted us as your children. You have made us to know you. And what we find is that you know us. You want to know us. You want to be in relationship with us. So we ask for grace. We need your help. So we ask that you would each day fill us with your spirit that you have put in us to dwell. We pray that as you have made us strong, you would make us stronger. We pray that we would remember who we are and who we know and that by your grace, we, this church family, would be a people that are reflecting the love and the light of Jesus in a dark world consumed by themselves and their sinful desires. We don't, we don't wanna be like that, we're so weak. We, we need your help. Thank you for how you've encouraged us in your word. Thank you for how you are quick to remind us of your care and your grace toward us. Thank you that as we ask for help, you are. 
glorious and gracious to give it, you jump at the chance to help your children. So we ask all these things in faith, trusting that you will help us. We ask that you would make us more captured by the Savior, that we would love him whom we know. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.